Welcome to the Shambhala Sunday Gatherings podcast. Each week, we invite a guest presenter from the Shambhala community to talk about what is meaningful to them or to share a brief Dharma talk. These explorations range from the reality of impermanence, death, and the unknown to how we express and work with joy, contentment, and fearlessness in our daily lives. Presenters offer a guided meditation or contemplation practice and invite reflections, comments, and questions from participants about the poignancy and complexity of our shared journey on planet Earth. Thank you for joining us for this week's Shambhala Sunday Gathering podcast. So welcome everyone to this week's Shambhala Sunday Gathering with Will Riken. My name is Faraday Rudy and I'm a member of both the Shambhala Global Services team and the Sunday Gatherings team. And I host a lot of these Sunday gatherings, and it is my pleasure to be hosting this week's Sunday gathering with Will, Will Riken. Um, each week, we invite a guest presenter to lead us in some community practice together and to give a brief uh, Dharma talk or teaching or to share about a particular initiative or project. And then there is a community discussion and questions and comments and shared insights and wisdom that can arise. So we're really happy that you can all be here today and be a part of this Sunday gathering. At this time, it is my great pleasure to introduce Will Riken. Will has been a member of the Shambhala community since 1972 and a member of the Dorje Kasang since 1975. Will co-founded Shambhala Sun Summer Camp a leadership training program for young people in 1984. He teaches around the world and is well known for his sense of wisdom, humor, and his inspirational qualities. Will lives and plays in St. Petersburg, Florida with his wife, Paula Bickford, and their two dogs, Brindle and Tashi. Will is here today to speak about everyday practice and humor. He will talk about, and I love the description for this week's Sunday gathering, he will talk about things, just things, and whatever comes up will be talked about. It will be fun, or maybe not. So thank you so much for being here today, Will, for leading us in community practice and conversation and for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you, Rudy. Thank you. (laughs) My wife hollered from the other room. Welcome, everybody. So glad you're all here. And we should begin with about. Anyway, I'd like to begin this this afternoon with just a short sitting practice of meditation, because we're going to be talking about that as everyday practice. And then we're going to be talking about a, a lot of different things. But to begin with, let's just everybody take good upright posture and of course begin with by just connecting with our senses our senses which are connected with the present moment and then just relax feel the earth beneath us space around Connect with the body breathing and just relax. We'll do that for just a few minutes.
Everyday practice in a sense of humor. Just do that. You should practice every day and you should have a sense of humor. That would work well. I wanted to talk about actually training ourselves to, to work with that. And the things that have helped me out over the years, one of the first things was that my first teachers were actually the, uh, the children of the Sangha. Running the Shambhala Sun summer camps was where I first learned about the idea of everyday practice and a sense of humor. Because when I first started doing that, and all the time thereafter, every year I was every there, ever I was there, I was always scared to death. At the beginning, scared to death. I have no idea why, except that it was on responsibility. And eventually, within the running of the camp, that would all dissolve, and there was no place I would rather be. So from that, working with the young people, someone decided that I would probably be a good person to work in prisons. So in the past 30 years, I've been working in prisons. And for two years now, the past COVID years, I've been not working in prisons. So I've had nothing to do but just to actually kind of work with myself. But then recently, I've just gone back to the state prison here in Florida. And I go every Friday. And so far, every Friday, they let me out. But the idea of, of working with the prison is, is a sense of really how do we present the practice of meditation? How do we present it to young people? How do we present it to new people? How do we present it to people in prison? And it's very tricky. It's like I tell a lot of the people in the prisons where I teach, I said, the first thing we're going to do is just like we do with the young people is we're going to sit down and pretend to meditate. Because that's what we do anyway, isn't it? We pretend to meditate. And over time, we do something, and something takes place, and it works. With people in prison, you have to be genuine. So it has to be straightforward when you're sitting down. So whenever I go into a prison, I have to go in with having no agenda, no idea what I'm going to do, except to just go in and sit down, get out of the way and open my mouth and see what happens. But the first thing in working with the meditation with the gentlemen in the prisons is letting them know that nothing, nothing happens during the practice of meditation. And that's important for all of us to remember that nothing happens during the sitting practice of meditation. Matter of fact, the thing that stands in the way of the practice of meditation working at all is having hopes, fears, and expectations. We're afraid something might happen. We're afraid nothing's going to happen. We're afraid we hope something's going to happen or we hope nothing's going to happen or we're expecting something to happen. So those three things are called Milarepa's banditos, hopes, fears, and expectations. And I know Milarepa's banditos well because I have lunch with them every day, hopes, fears, and expectations. So once we get that out of the way, then the sitting practice of meditation is to sit down. And the practice of meditation itself is to teach us how to get out of the way. It's simply training our minds to be in the present moment and relaxing enough to get out of the way and let our own innate wisdom wake up by itself. And it does it quite naturally, except we always, and especially when I'm working with people in prison, they always think they can add on things. If I do, if I do it like that, and then I add this on to it, this is going to make it better. And so a lot of the things that they think that they're supposed to do is to stop the thoughts, stop thinking. Because they're in prison, they can find a way to actually get into a place that's called dumb meditation, stupid meditation, which is very dangerous. They just zone out, boom, until there's nobody there. I've had them tell me that, you know, I can sit for 45 minutes and not even know that the time goes by. So 
and then take the time to explain them. Sogni Rinpoche told us one time the story of the Chinese invading Tibet. They found a lot of these stupid meditators in caves. And there were these bodies in there that were alive, but there was nobody home. They were barely breathing. And they would go in and stick them with bayonets and stuff and giggle and just to watch them breathe and stuff. So I remember Sogni Rinpoche said, remember to not get caught up in the stupid meditation. So I have to warn them about that in the prisons because they want to escape from prison and they try to do it through the meditation. And so the meditation practice itself, as we all know, is simply if we do it properly and connect with the boredom of, of that meditation, then out of that boredom, everything that we need to work with is already there. It's already there. If it's anger we need to work with, the anger will come up. If it's jealousy we need to work with, that'll come up. If it's pride, that'll come up. It doesn't matter what it is that's in the background that we need to work with. If we do the meditation properly and connect with the boredom of the practice itself, whenever we need to work with, we'll be there. I work with a gentleman on death row in Angola prison in Louisiana, scary place. I was driving up to prison here in Florida and I got a phone call from a gentleman named Toby Sifton and, he, and I said, I can't talk right now. I'm on my way to prison. He said, well, that's what I want to talk to you about. So he got a hold of me later and he said, there's a gentleman on death row in Louisiana, and his lawyer was looking for someone to go up and work with him. And I said, well, tell me something about him. He said, well, I don't know that much about him, but the lawyer is willing to fly you up, stand, spend the night at his house, and then you can drive from, from New Orleans up to Baton Rouge. So I started going up there to visit this gentleman. His name was David Brown, not our David Brown. <laughs> I went up and visited with his lawyer in New Orleans, and the lawyer said, well, David read a book that was called Buddhism Without Belief, and he said, that's what I believe in. So we've been looking for someone willing to go up and just work with him, work with him with meditation, etc. So I said, that's fine. So he bought me a ticket. I went up to New Orleans and went to his house, rented a car, and then the next day I drove up to Angola prison in Baton Rouge. And on the way up there, I was thinking to myself, what kind of an arrogant ass are you to think you could go up there and do this guy on death row any good? And I was really getting totally paranoid about going into the prison and meeting this guy who had all props, all kinds of probably expectations. Well, I found out later on, he was thinking, what the hell am I gonna have in common with some guy in white robes and a red dot in his forehead. So we both started off with, from the same end. And when I went in and we sat down, and at the beginning, we had to do it by phone in the visiting room through the plexiglass. So they used to call me two phones up there because I was hard of hearing and I'd have a phone to each ear while we were doing this. And it was very hard to work with meditation with just phones and that. And also because he had no idea what we were doing, the very first thing I did, I said, I want you to just connect with putting your hand on the metal table in front of you and just feel that. Relax with just that. And I took him to, I said, now I want you to just listen to the sounds in the prison and then feel the space around you. So we just started off with a very basic thing of not doing anything except working with those senses and me explaining to him that the whole idea is that all of these things can bring you back to the present moment, which is what it's all about. So I left that day and then I came back the next day and he told me, he said, he said, I don't know what you did to me, but he said, the first time since I've been in here, it feels like there could be some joy left in my life. So we had a connection right away. And then finally, the assistant warden found out that I was visiting in the room with the plexiglass and the phones. And the assistant warden said, if he's coming up from Florida 
we have to have contact visits. So we started having contact visits with each other and sitting down. Then we started into actually working with the practice of meditation. At one point, one of the women guards in the room came up to me afterwards. She said, I can't do meditation. I've never been able to. And I looked at her and smiled and I said, nobody can. I said, that's why we do it, because we can't do it. So we just practice that. So in working with the practices of the people in the prison, it's a good place to actually point out the idea that there is no happiness in the phenomenal world, the samsara, at all. There is nothing in this world that can make us happy. It can make us feel good for a limited time. It can do that. But to actually find complete happiness in anything, there is nothing in the world that we can have that will make us happy. You might think, oh, all I need is a brand new car. You get a brand new car and the minute you drive out of the showroom with it, you're afraid that the rocks are beating up the car on the underneath. You're terrified of the other drivers. Now the car is bringing you nothing but pain and misery. And if we look at the things in our life, it's always that way. It's always like that. There is joy. However, there's joy can come out of some of the silliest places. And we can appreciate things in our life. So renunciation doesn't mean giving up anything. We can appreciate the things that are just there and have a good time with music, people, food, all of those things. But we can't just sink all our eggs into the basket of thinking that that's my pleasure is going to come out of that. And I can be happy. So the idea of practice of meditation is how do we sit down and make friends with this completely? And it's quite simply that as we begin to practice more and more, we develop a sense of warmth towards this ourselves. And that warmth automatically starts to extend out to others. Well, I remember it even worked one time when I was having a hard time with my wife and that scent of warmth extended out even to her. And when we would have arguments or things, I would try to lighten things up by bringing up a little sense of humor or whatever. And it's like she would sometimes say, no, 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 I want to be angry. Don't try to lighten anything up. But that in itself lightened up the whole approach. So it's learning to play with the whole thing, everything. So my job is to teach people how to get over self-consciousness and embarrassment. Quite simply, how do we get over self-consciousness and embarrassment about ourselves in the world? And we do that by just connecting with that sense of light touch with the world and a sense of playing with things. Paul and I have a thing we do every time we go to an airport and we peel off to our respective restrooms and whoever comes out first sets up an ambush for the other one. And so when you come out of the bathroom, you have no idea whether you're setting up an ambush or whether you're walking into one. However, the people around you take quite a delight in trying to figure out what the hell is going on with these two people. So it does that in the sense of making other people smile is the sense of overcoming our own self-consciousness and embarrassment. And we can do it in grocery stores. We can do it in any place at all, pharmacies, any place where just can bring a sense of just smile to other people. And by just doing that, we begin to learn that we can overcome our own self-consciousness and embarrassment. Because we've taken the time to actually make friends with this. And it gives us great pleasure to make other people smile, to bring a little bit of moment of joy. And that's all it takes. I remember not two days ago, we were in a down to get flu shots and, and, a, and a booster. And Paula was doing the shopping while we were waiting for everything to go through. And she was with the cart and she went to walk away and she stopped for something. And she just held up this gentleman behind her. And I said, Paula, I said, you need to move. There's someone behind you. 
So she took off and I looked at the guy and I said, that was a hell of a place to take a nap, wasn't it? And it, it somehow it just struck him just so perfectly that he just laughed out loud. And so we do those things. I remember once I asked a gentleman where he was from and he said, right here. I said, you live right here in, in this grocery store? And he was like, yeah, I do. So he made me giggle. So anyway, the whole idea of everything in our world is how do we lighten it up just a tad in order to give ourselves an easier journey and to get off our own case. And I tell some people sometimes what I do when I'm in a really bad mood or something, I will intentionally go into the bathroom and look in the mirror and just say, are we having a hard time today, Boopy? Is that what's going on? And it doesn't always work, but occasionally it will go, all right, all right. It's temporary. It's temporary. So because of impermanence, when we're having a good time, we should be extremely sad because it's not going to last. And when we're sad and in pain, we should be very joyous because that's not going to last. So impermanence always gives us the right connection with whatever we want to do. I'm going to tell you a story which has nothing to do with anything except I want to do it because I just got it the other day. <laughs> but there was a, a father was sitting there talking to his son and his son said to him, he said, I think you're going to get a note from school. And the father said, what did you do? What did you do? He said, well, he said, I was in the cafeteria. And in the cafeteria, when I was walking down, there was a big bowl of fruit, apples. And there was a sign on the apples that said, just take one, God is watching. So I went down the line and there was a big bowl of chocolate chip cookies. And I wrote a note on the chocolate chip cookies and said, take all you want, God's watching the apples. <laughs> now, that was brand new from yesterday, so I, I, I had to share it somewhere. <laughs> You were the first people that had to get it. So humor in our tradition doesn't necessarily mean slapstick, ha-ha, funny stuff, but humor is just the irony of that we're stuck. We're caught here. We're all in this together. We can't get out of it. There's no way out except for just sitting down and relaxing and doing nothing. And there's a thing I'm supposed to give you for a contemplation at the end of this, but I'm going to give it to you now and I'll, I'll repeat it later on. This was a sign that, that was in a, on the door of a chaplain's office at one of the prisons. And I was totally amazed to have this sign on the chaplain's office. But it, the sign said, enlightenment happens by accident and meditation makes us accident prone. So enlightenment does happen by accident. It even happened by accident to the Buddha. The Buddha spent years practicing, meditation, studying, looking, all of these austerities. He did everything he could to try to figure out what this whole thing was about. What is this about? And at one point, finally, the, the shepherd boy gave him the kusha grass to sit on, and the servant girl brought him some curds and whey or milk and honey. And at that point, he stopped looking. Boom. And he discovered the whole thing. And the simplicity of just grasping and fixation. And he recognized that. But then he also recognized that the, the thing was so simple that he couldn't actually ever tell anybody what it was. And so he didn't for a long time until the Brahma and the other deities said, you, you have to give this, you have to give this. And so he started, of course, by the Four Noble Truths at Deer Park. And then later on with the Heart Sutra on Vulture Peak Mountain. And that was a problem. The Heart Sutra was a problem because that was kind of a nihilistic approach. 
And a lot of people said, well, if there isn't anything and there isn't anything at all, why do we need to do anything? And so then he had to do the third turning of the wheel of Dharma, which was the Buddha nature, bodhicitta, that there is wisdom and compassion. So, oh, if there is that, then I guess I should do something. But the irony of the whole thing is that we are stuck. Every once in a while, I'll wake up in the morning and think, you know, I'm stuck. And my wife said, well, just roll over and you can get out of bed. (laughs) York was right there. He came up to visit me for a couple of weeks. We had a great time. We just sat around and told stories. Every afternoon I would tell and he would record stories. And he lives in Brazil, and I do some storytelling in Brazil the first Monday of every month. And I told all the Brazilians that I know one word of Portuguese, and that's York. And that is my one word of Portuguese. So I'm going to open it up for questions. If anybody has any questions or comments, disagreements, arguments, anything, we're open for whatever. Peter. Yeah, I like your comment about uh, enlightenment happens by accident. And then uh, meditation makes us accident prone. I had been uh, meditating for about a year living in New York City and not having much results, you know. And a friend had a farm in upstate New York, invited me up for the weekend. They had some horses. And I said, "Uh, what can I do to help you out? And he said, well, the, the horse barn needs the manure shoveled out of there. The horses have been in there all winter. So he gave me a pitchfork and I went out and I was shoveling, not thinking about anything. All of a sudden, I went into samadhi, like nirvikalpa samadhi. There was no self at all, just bliss and light. And I don't know how long I was in that state. And I came back and the horse was looking at me. The horse knew something happened. I still had the pitchfork in the air. And uh, of course, there was no awareness of what had happened until I started to come back into being myself, you know. So I thought, geez, all this time they've been hiding this secret, how to attain enlightenment. So, you know, the rest of the weekend, I shoveled that manure like crazy, but that never happened again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Peter. Then then your expectations got in the way and it never came back. Exactly. Now you could become enlightened changing diapers or washing dishes or who knows what all, you know. I talked to the local sheriff and he said, there's something about you that's different. And I said, well, I meditate. He said, what's that? And I tried to explain to him. And he said, well, you know, I go fishing Saturday mornings and I lean against the tree and I throw the hook into the water. And then like an hour passes and I don't remember what happened, except I feel really blissful and I have answers to all of my problems. So anyway, there's all different ways. Indeed. Thank you, Peter. How's Mount Shasta? Oh, it's beautiful. It's pretty dry, but uh, blue sky. You know, we had some fires and stuff, but uh, I'm one of my neighbors is doing a Buddhist smoke offering this afternoon. I haven't been to one of those in a long time. So, a lasong. Yeah, I guess. But, you know, I've got a question for you. Sometimes all these Buddhist practices seem to get in the way of actually the enlightenment experience. I mean, Buddha didn't set out to say we need another religion, right? But we've made a religion out of it in a sense. Well, and then that was what uh, Trumpa came along and said, we don't need that either. So we have the Shambhala approach, which is that if you actually do the practices, you can wake up to your own basic goodness and go from there and be of benefit to other people. Right, right. So it, it all works. Good. Valerie. Uh, 
I, I recently went through a very big, um, essentially a divorce, and I've been afraid to sit with myself. How do you sit with yourself when you're afraid of what will come up? Well, that's the idea, sweetie. <laughs> if I was you, I'd be afraid to sit with myself also. However, <laughs> the idea is that everything that's there is also causing you ongoing pain. So in order to make friends with that, you actually sit and let those things come up. And the things that bother you will come up and they will come up and they will bother you. You acknowledge them and then use the technique. Again, I'm just relaxing with the breath. Don't use the technique to get away from what's bothering you, but let whatever it is that's bothering you, let it be there, taste it, and then come back to the breath. And over time, when it comes up, it won't have the impact that it does initially. And then eventually you'll begin to see that you become stronger because of that whole experience. And also you'll develop a lot more understanding and compassion for other people and understand what they're going through for them. So this is something that's going to help you be a benefit to people later on. So I'm sorry about that, sweetheart, that you have to go through it. But, but it's yours and it will make you a stronger and more open person as you do that. So sit more and just do it. And only sit for five, I mean, 10 to 15 minutes. Don't try to do a long thing. Just do 10 to 15 minutes and then go out and walk and get some fresh air and use your senses to relax and open up again. And then also send me an email. I'll work with you. Thank you, sir. It's really wonderful to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you. One of my original teachers there, one of the children. <laughs> not, not a child anymore, although in some ways, yes. <laughs> Yes, Paul. I I just saw that Eric had his hand up, but um, Paul, uh, I'll, we'll bring you up next. Eric. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm really enjoying the presentation. Um, I at the, at the risk of um, just building on. What, uh, what what Peter and I guess it was Valerie said um, at this for 10 years um, just um, just now finishing a divorce um, getting kind of back to my practice and uh, far from from knowing where where enlightenment is I, I suspect it's just a little bit under the horseshit so um, I appreciate uh, today thank you you're welcome. And I've been doing for 40 years and I've just got my nose up out of there now and then getting some fresh air. The thing is, is that the practice of meditation and the practice itself, remember what I said, nothing happens during the sitting practice of meditation. Everything starts to take place in the world when we get developed the strength to be more and more present. Then the world has the ability to come up and occasionally kiss us on the cheek or slap us upside the head, depending on what we need. But the more we practice, the more we have that ability to be present. And then we begin to experience things as they are and as they arise. And we get more of a sense of actually pleasure out of the moment and things. So nothing takes place during the meditation except the things that bother us will come up if we're doing it properly. Good luck. Hello, Will. Nice to see you. Who's talking? Paul is uh, Paul is up on the screen now. Oh, okay. Oh, Mr. Wagoner, hi. Hey, nice to see you. You too. And I, I just wanted to add a comment because we used to mention this. When Peter was saying that... Uh, he doesn't understand about the Buddha starting a religion. Well, we have to remember the Buddha was not a Buddhist. Right? He didn't know what he was getting into. He, he was, there was no example for him. So, and then once, as you will said, you know, you're, you're radiating, he was radiating like that. 
people came running to him. And in fact, his mother came to him and said, you have to stop because you're depopulating all these villages, all these <laughs> villages. The men are coming to listen to you. The women aren't allowed. And then they leave. They abandon their families and they become monks. So it was a very, Schumpa called it a, an atomic bomb that went out. Anyway, nice to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And you were there then, weren't you, Paul? And you're and you're still around. Who knows where I was? <laughs> I just brought up uh, Melissa. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, so uh, I know you have a lot of experience with young people. And I have a nine-year-old now and almost five-year-old next Thursday. And um, the you know, they have big emotions being kids and get angry at each other and all of that. Um, and I'm wondering what's a what's some good advice for like how to to support the nine-year-old and you know, I don't want to make I don't want to make him meditate, but help him work with his emotions and maybe think about doing something like that. The five, the almost five-year-old likes to sit down and meditate uh, for one minute um, or 30 seconds. But so any, any advice on the No, because it, at, at nine years old, anything that comes for you is going to be, but you could make it as a family adventure to everybody sit down for 30 seconds just to feel like what that space is. But the thing is, is working with young people, you have to get into a thing of actually being in cahoots with them. Do things that you think, that, you know, let them know, you know, we're not supposed to do this, but we're going to sit down and practice for 10 minutes. <laughs> and there's a, there's a book right there. It's called Baby Buddha. And that might be the answer. Look it up. Go to Amazon and get a book called Baby Buddha. Paul, tell us about it. Uh, hey, thanks for having me. Um, I, I, I've skimmed through this book. It's uh, pretty good. Uh, my son's only two and a half, so he just wants to look at the pictures. But um, he's starting to get it. Um, and I'm from Philadelphia, and I was waving to Eric to say hi. But uh, that's about it. Thanks for having me. Cool. Thanks for the recommendation. Mm -hmm. So Melissa, that's, it's a, the adventure of going out to uh, work with the young people. Matter of fact, we wouldn't even accept them into the Shambhala Sun summer camp until they were 10, because they were too flighty and that. And even at 10, I remember some of the young boys would go up and they would hide in the outhouses so they wouldn't have to attend the sitting practice. And the staff would come to me and say, well, should we get them out of the outhouse and make them come sit? I said, no, they're sitting in the outhouse. They're doing exactly what we want them to do, but they're doing it in a place that doesn't smell so good. <laughs> Great. Could I reply to Melissa? Oh, Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, a friend of mine's a school teacher in Switzerland. She works with young children every day. And she tried to bring these teachings in. She wrote a book, uh, you know, with illustrations for children. And you get some kid that's worked up. And you say, first, I want you to count your breaths, you know, like from one to 10, 10 back down or whatever, just to get them to calm down a little bit. Then try to ask yourself, what emotion am I feeling? If you're feeling anger, squeeze your first finger. If you're feeling fear, squeeze the second finger. If it's jealousy, this finger, and you know, if it's greed, this finger, then that just helps them go, wow, now I know what I'm feeling. You know, it just helps them separate. They're not totally identified with the emotion anymore, you know? So Peter, then, that's it. That's advice for adults, not children. Yeah, exactly. I do that myself. <laughs> Some guy cuts me off in traffic. Oh, that's impatience. That that's anger. Impatience is a form of anger. 
I thought it's brilliant. And then you can go back to the breath again, and the kids love it. You know? She's teaching you. In, the, in the schools now. So, yeah. Great, thank you. Thank you very much. David Lewis. Yeah, hi, Will. I, we haven't spoken in 40 quite a years. While. <laughs> um, I just, <clears throat> I have to go pretty soon, but I wanted to let you know that. Um, through a lot of meditation and a lot of diligence and mindfulness and awareness, I have finally stopped drinking Everclear out of the bottle. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'll see you later. Thank you, David. Good to see you. Good to see you. There was something that came up in the chat. Um, Dan Siegel writes a good book about uh, children. I'm assuming children and meditation. So for those who want to check out in that recommendation. I wonder what happened to the guy on death row. Was he executed? No. Oh, God bless. Yeah. He's had a very... Oh, he, he so he, has he contacted you for more instruction? I've been going. I was going up there once a month. I would sit, with, go up there with him for three hours on Saturday and three hours on on Sundays, Saturday and Sundays. And we would sit in the community room with other visiting families, and we would have a table to ourselves and just practice meditation and then talk and then. So I became known as he was the gentleman with the spiritual advisor. So, well, bless you. You might have saved his life, you know? No, he might have saved mine. Oh, okay. <laughs> but actually, we all have a death sentence, don't we? Yeah, that's exactly right. Have you seen the film? It was about Goenka. I think it's called Inside Out, where he went into the prisons in India and taught Vipassana. Yeah, there's some, and they, he did that in a, they did that in a prison in Alabama, of all places, also. Mm. And the, the people that took the, uh, did the classes, the Vipassana classes, were given a little bit of time off for good behavior for taking the classes. Mm. Well, when there's a guy at the door with a shotgun, that's an incentive to sit still, you know? Yeah, that's an image that we have of that. <laughs> Well, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing. You're welcome. So there's a lot of good books listed here if people want to look at those for those. Yeah, it looks like there's some great um, comments about uh, the Dan Siegel book uh, called The Whole Brain Child. He writes about neurology in general. Um, I also recommend, and then um, there's a question, is the other book Baby Buddhas by Lisa Desand? Not sure if anyone has the answer to that. Yeah, thumbs up on that, <laughs> confirmation. And another good book on parenting is You Are Your Child's First Teacher loosely based on the Waldorf approach, with Chugyam, which Chugyam Trungpa Rinpoche actually recommended. So some good recommendations there, folks. Is there anyone else who has a comment or an insight, something they'd like to share? Um, there's a question um, from Lisa in Amsterdam. How did you get involved in bringing meditation into prisons? Um. It, it came natural after working with the Shambhala Sun summer camp with the young people. And someone said, you're so good at doing that, you probably would do good in prison as well. And also it came about from, in my youth, I spent some time in jail, or no big thing, but when I was in jail, I was shocked that there were actually people in. I didn't realize that even at the age of 20 years old, I had an image of people in jail as being 
different than what I experienced them to be when I got there. And when I saw them in jail, I said, well, these are just people. These are fathers and brothers and stuff. And I, so all of a sudden I realized that there, there, was, there was things that could happen in their teachings. So I'll tell a story. I worked with a prison in uh, Colorado, and there was a lot of the grizzled old timers. There's two stories. One of them is I worked, we used to teach in a prison that had a, a place that they had the facilities that they trained dogs, guide dogs for people. And you went, well, wait a minute, before we do that, Hudson, you got a question. Go ahead and finish your story. No, no, please go with that. Story no, no. last. No, no. Well, I don't have a question, but I was wondering if uh, you spent a lot. You spent a lot of time at the Shambhala Sun, correct? Correct. And and you have mentioned that the children have been your teachers. I wonder if you would like to give us a story about one of the one of the most remarkable experiences of that that you had if you can i'll give you a story there's so many stories but i'll give you one okay and and this is remarkable in the sense of what happened out of it not so much but one night we were sitting around the campfire one evening and a gentleman came up to the campfire and said can i go down and take a shower we just got through working in the kitchen and I'm kind of greasy. I said, no, we all go down together to take showers in groups. However, you can go in the kitchen, get yourself a bucket of hot water, and go out and wash up. That's fine. So anyway, the gentleman snuck out of camp with two other guys. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the word got back. And so we went. I told Jim Lowry and I, we got, I got some handcuffs out of my tent. We went out and got in the car, and I said, let's go find them. So, of course, they were at the nearest bathhouse in Campman Grounds, down at Rotten, it's called. And we walked in, and they were just getting out of the shower. And at this time, the shower house is full of people that are getting ready for a big banquet downtown. All the civilians are there. So I go in, and I tell these three gentlemen, and I'm in my nice khakis with, the, you know, all the, the that accoutrement. And I just said, get dressed. And they got dressed, kind of going, uh-oh. And then as they stood up in front of everybody, without saying a word at all, I said, put your hands behind your back. And <laughs> I slapped the handcuffs on, on them. And we let them out and just picked them up and set them in the back of the pickup truck and drove off without saying anything to anybody. So they probably had all kinds of really terrible ideas of who we were. But on the way up the hill, I... We stopped the truck and I climbed in the back with them and I said, listen, I said, there's a few things that was really wrong with what you did. Number one is you weren't in camp. We didn't know you were gone. If there was a fire or anything, somebody could get killed because we wouldn't have left without finding where you were. Second thing is if there was anything missing from anybody's tent or the shower house, you would be blamed for it. And we can't protect you from being accused of taking things that don't belong to you because we don't have you under our protection. And I said, the thing that pisses me off the most is all the years we've worked together and you couldn't even sneak out of camp without getting caught. And then I said, we're going to ask you to spend the night in the stockade, which we had a little chicken wire stockade. And I said, we'll keep everybody away from you. But I said, I've got to do something in order to just cement that. So they were very grateful. And the staff thought that I was crazy by telling them that they couldn't even get away with sneaking out of camp. I said, they understood. You don't have to. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, uh, what did they teach you? That I could just act out exactly what they needed, that they came from them through me back to them. Oh, okay. Thanks. Another, nice to see you. Uh, yeah, it is. Great to see you. <laughs> Another time we were, up, we were up on top and we were doing some capture the flag skirmish maneuvers. And we had three groups out there, and I went to one group, and I said, I want you to go up to the valley there, and I want you to set up an ambush for the other group. So they went up to set up the ambush, and then I went down to the other group, and I said, they set up an ambush for you up the valley there. I want you to walk into the ambush and figure out what you're going to do. And then I ran back to the top of the hill, and I said, I told them that you have the ambush set up here, and they're going to walk into it looking for it. So you have to figure out what you're going to do. And one mm -hmm. of the young people said, 
why do you do what he says? You know he's just lying to you. <laughs> the older one just said, that's the way he teaches us. Uh-huh. <laughs> Great to see you. You too. Okay, go ahead with your other story that I interrupted. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. What was the other story? I don't know. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Actually, we're out of time. We can do that one during the overtime. So thank you for all the questions and, and, and all the participation here. And I wanted to leave you with the one contemplation for the week for afterwards is the one about enlightenment happens by accident and meditation makes you accident prone. So that's your contemplation for the week. You know, turn it back over to Faraday. Thank you so much, Will. And uh, I love the way you you put it that we're about to go into overtime. Um, thank you all so much for being here. Um, something that we say at the end of every Sunday gathering um, at the at the end of each week that we do this is that um, we do offer these uh, free of charge. Uh, we know people do make donations to be here at times. Um, and if uh, you can um, offer something to help us continue to uh, put these on, that would be very appreciated. So again, a big thank you to all of you for being here today. Next week's Sunday gathering is going to feature guest presenters Gio Legoreta and Lourdes Alvarez, and they are going to be talking about the Day of the Dead or the Dia de Muertos. So the description is, um, as Shambhala meditators, Day of the Dead can bring up uh, resonance with the deep Buddhist teachings on death and impermanence and our societal approach to working directly with the challenges of our human life. So that sounds very interesting and juicy, and uh, I hope many of you can come back next week for another Sunday gathering. So thank you so much for being here and goodbye for now. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please like and subscribe to the podcast. We hope you can join us again soon. You can find out more about upcoming live Shambhala Sunday gatherings and our podcast at shambhalaonline.org forward slash Sunday dash gatherings forward slash.